Welcome to Catch the Fire London podcast. We hope as you listen to this message that you will encounter God's transforming presence. Yeah, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. And we just pray for your anointing and your blessing on Dan as he brings it. And anything that's not of you that was his own thoughts, just let it get sidetracked and just your Holy Spirit take over your wisdom. Just infuse this word now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I wonder, Andrew, maybe just pass one round during and it can just keep going round and round. And then if you think it's a good preach, you can keep giving and stuff like that. No, that's great. Um, so... I'm preaching on the Lamb of God today, and that's what the youth and the children, well, not the youth, the children are looking at today as well. But um, something quite different for me I'm going to do is I'm actually going to have a little bit of instrumental music playing in the background. And this is because when I was preparing yesterday and I had it playing, actually I felt like the Lord's anointing really on it. And so I'm just going to sort that out. So I'm going to press play up here, Addy. And then you can, there we go. That's about perfect. Yeah, not too loud. Just a little bit quieter than that. Um, don't fall asleep on me, but just let the anointing flow. Um, but as I was preparing and looking at the Lamb of God, I just I felt there's some real depth for us to learn today. And we're going to do a bit of a study as well. But before we go anywhere, we're going to read God's Word. Because that's really important. And so if you want to turn with me, or it will appear on the screen as well. But we're going to read from John 1, verse 19. 34. So I'm reading in the New King James, which will appear up on there, but you can do it in whatever version you do as well. Okay. So now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then he said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I come baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Amen. Amen. 
So Jesus, the Lamb of God, that's who we're looking at today. And if you remember in the Advent journey, when we got to the third candle, the joy candle, the shepherd's candle, so I don't remember what we learned, roughly, about the location of Jesus' birth, potentially. Now you've all, you've all ate too much over Christmas and forgotten. So it was the Tower of the Flock as prophesied in Malachi. And so we find it's called Migdal Eda. And what we found looking at that was when we have this story of the shepherds and the angels encountering them in the fields, and the angel says to them, this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. And it says that the shepherds made great haste to where the babe lay. It doesn't say that they had to go and get directions. It didn't say they got the Google Maps. I didn't say they ran around like crazy people trying to find a baby. It said they made great haste and knew exactly where they were going. And in Malachi 4.8, I think it is, we find um, this prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And it's talking of the tower of the flock. Or in Hebrew, it's the word Migdal Eda, the tower of the flock. And now Bethlehem, because it was an ancient city, had fortifications from when Israel was still taking the promised land and still um, fighting for its kingdom. And one of the fortifications outside of Bethlehem, amongst where the pasture land would have been, was a tower called the Tower of the Flock because it resided on the best pasture land in the area called Migdal Eda. And it's believed by Messianic Jewish scholars that this is in fact a better location to be believed as the location of the birth of Christ than the Church of the Nativity in the center of Bethlehem. Because what would happen with this tower for about a thousand years since they had been no longer in conflict and the need of it, it had become something used by the shepherds in Bethlehem, who were special shepherds, if you remember me saying. Because the temple in Jerusalem needed lambs for the daily sacrifice and for the annual sacrifice of atonement that were recognized as spotless, unblemished lambs of sacrifice, the Lamb of Atonement. And so you required special lambs from a special location with special shepherds to identify who these special lambs were. And Bethlehem was where the lambs of atonement were found. And you had these shepherds who were trained and qualified to identify a spotless lamb, male lamb without blemish. And what they would do was they would take the ewes who were pregnant into the tower of the flock, the Migdalida, and they would protect them and look after them in this fortification until the time was right for them to give birth. And then in the birthing, what would happen is if there was a male lamb without spot or blemish, they would take that lamb, they would wrap it in swaddling clothes, and they'd place it into a major. And that's what they would do with the sacrificial lamb. And so when these shepherds who knew exactly what they were doing when it came to sacrificial lambs heard an angel say, this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. They knew exactly where they were going. And they knew exactly what they were looking for. They were looking for the Lamb of God. They were looking for the ultimate atonement Lamb who would die in sacrifice for the sins of the world so that we could be set free for all time. Not needing that daily morning and evening sacrifice of the sacrificial lamb. Not needing that annual lamb of atonement for the whole nation of Israel. But stepping into a realm and a reality where one would come from the throne of heaven. And as a lamb approach slaughter to be slain so that we could be set free. And so we looked at that. And actually that's where we need to start is looking at Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. But then we also find in Scripture, it talks in Revelation 14, verse 8, in the NIV, which we'll get up on the screen, 
All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. And as I've been praying this week and as I've been preparing, it really stuck to me something. That I think we often talk about how we, we need forgiveness. We need to be set free from our sins because we're sinful in nature. And actually, I'd say that probably came through the dark ages really but the, the one of the core doctrines of the church is that man is sinful in nature and that's what's led to infant baptism because of original sin and all this kind of stuff that we talk about but then that for me doesn't work because it says that God created us sinful so therefore there's imperfection and flaw in his creation but then we have this extraordinary dynamic where God created the heavens and the earth and it wasn't by accident that he needed Jesus to come as the lamb to be slain because it says here that he was the lamb that was slain before the creation of the earth and so there's this beautiful dualism in God that we find where he creates with perfection and it says in in Genesis that we were made in what? God's image and so we weren't made in the image of sin we weren't made in the image of imperfection we weren't made with flaw we were made spotless and without blemish in the sight of God we were made in his image so in his design we were created perfect but also within his design he created choice didn't he and he gave us the ability to free will and three four and so I wrote this as I was journaling this week but I said it has been said that man is sinful in nature but we're made in the image of God we are glorious in nature tainted by the choices that we make away from him And you see, God, he sets it up for glory, doesn't he? He creates the heavens and the earth. He believes that we could do it. He believes the best in us. Even just, you know, it says that in Galatians, it says that we're no longer slaves to fear, but when we've become children of God and we're made in his image, like he believes that we could be glorious. In Colossians 3, it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not saying, okay, you know, Andrew, he's really, really good, and I'm really hoping that he might make some good choices, and in those good choices that I might be glorified. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about here. The word hope there in the Greek means the absolute assurance of something coming to pass. And so when he says, Christ in you, Andrew, the hope of glory, he's saying, I've placed myself in you, believing wholeheartedly that you will glorify me. And so God didn't create flaws. He, he, he built it all in the best belief of who we are, but also ingrained into it a fail-safe mechanism just in case. Which is extraordinary that before we even sinned, it wasn't that he was expecting us to, but just in case, he created an atmosphere where Jesus could be slain for all of us. But it also means to me that right there, the cross, whilst it was a moment in history, is outside of history. Because yes, the cross in the moment of like 33 AD when Jesus the man went and was nailed to a cross by Romans outside of the walls of Jerusalem is a moment in history but this spiritual action of that transcends all time because it was done in the spirit before time even began and so what does that mean to us it means that everything of creation is under the mercy of the cross is under the mercy of his grace and his identity as the slain lamb. And so his sacrifice is outside of time and eternity. But it also means that actually we don't have to embrace the nature of sin in our lives 
But actually, we have to embrace the fact that we have just as much potential to be righteous as we do to be sinful. Because if God didn't create us sinful in nature, but glorious in nature, but gave us free will of choice, then it's literally like that. We have a choice. Do we want to be righteous and holy and like our identified purpose and our glorious creation? Or do we want to be sinful in nature and make poor choices? And I think sometimes we, we spend our lives wrestling with sin because we believe that that is our nature in our carnal selves. So that when the cross is applied, it's great. We get freedom, we get deliverance, and we have all that kind of stuff. And that's really good. But I don't think that's the fullness of the theology because actually we shouldn't have to wrestle with sin because it's not our nature. Our nature is to be glorious. Our nature is to be like him. Our nature is to be made in the image of God. And so actually it boils down to a choice at the end of the day. And so really we're battling here not with our sinful nature and whether or not God is a good God, bad God. And all those classic questions you get from people who are like, well, if God was real, why would there be evil in the world? We're battling with the choices of humanity. We're battling with the choices that either place us firmly in his nature or place us firmly outside of his nature. In Deuteronomy, you've heard this verse a million times. It says, he places blessings and curses, life and death before you choose life. He doesn't say death is the easy route. He says, simple, choose life, choose death, choose life, choose death. And it's that simple. We are actually in bondage through our mostly our own action, our own choices. Sometimes we wage war on the enemy when actually he's won in that moment because he's distracting us from the real challenge, which is just simply ourselves and our self-choices and our self-attitudes and our self-beliefs. Because you've got to remember something. The devil is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. It's maybe sometimes better phrased as the devil's influence in us and the choices we therefore make are the things we need to rage war against before we even get to that place of actually if the devil is turning up you're probably doing a really good thing because he makes time for people doing stuff that's why he spent time in the wilderness with Jesus that he showed up to that place but also think of this for a second how much better was the rest of the world when he was trying to antagonize Jesus in the wilderness because he was distracted isn't that extraordinary <laughs> so he was the lamb that was slain before time and then going back to that John 1 2, 29 verse when he approaches and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now to everybody present, they would have been Jewish believers. They would have known exactly what John is getting at in that moment. To us, it sounds like a nice little metaphor that he's a lamb, he's gentle, he's meek, he's mild, he's all that kind of stuff. But then, then they would have known absolutely what he was getting at in that moment. Because there was only knowledge of one type of lamb in Israel at that point in the practical sense which was a natural lamb that would be purchased or brought to the temple to be lain on the altar and to be slain for the sins of either the person bearing it or for the nation on the day of atonement and so when they will turn to look they're expecting to see a lamb walking up and they see a man and they all would have known through the prophecies of the Old Testament and the Torah that the lamb that was slain in human form is the Messiah. So they'll have known exactly what he was getting at at that moment. He'll have known, they'd have known that he was actually the lamb of atonement. And before I get into some of the really interesting, like, scriptural, historical stuff that's actually really amazing, why do we need atonement? Why do we need 
that sacrificial lamb. Couldn't have Jesus just in his ultimate power because it says that he was the word become flesh. Ashley talked about last week. You know, it was, if you want a Trinitarian basis for the creation of the world, it says the spirit hovered over the waters. It says that God spoke, let there be light, and there was. And so you have God, identity, the Father. You have the spoken authority, which is the word, which is Jesus. And you have the spirit hovering over the waters. It's by the power placed in Jesus that when God speaks, authority comes. Isn't that extraordinary? And so surely Jesus could have just come and said, right, bing, bang, brosh, you're done, you're free. Sin is dealt with. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to tear up the contract. But no, there was a need for atonement. It says in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. And so therefore, to pay the debt of death, there needs to be death to pay the debt and clear it. It required the death of one perfect in nature to set us free from our sin. And near the end of this month, start of February, we'll get more into that. But in short, if you have, I'm going to use Andrew. I'm going to pick on Andrew and Timmy. Andrew, he's a pretty good guy, right? Everyone agrees? He's a good guy. Okay, some of you don't agree. You should agree. He's a good guy. And Andrew is God's perfect son. God loves him. He's his child. He adores him. And while he's sitting there next to Timmy, Timmy is doing that really lovely thing where he starts to hog the elbow space of the seating arrangement we have until Andrew is too much in Timmy's way and Timmy elbows him in the ribs and really hurts him. And God's wrath comes upon Timmy. Because he's like, you hurt my perfect son, Andrew. Right? Because that's that's what is good and fair. That is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Like, my son has been hurt, so therefore my wrath is coming upon you. But then there's a problem because Timmy is also... God's perfect son and also unfortunately in this world of choice Andrew has a little angel in front of him going choose life choose life, choose life but Andrew ignores the angel and goes I'm going to choose death and punches Timmy in the face and they've got a problem because then God's wrath is upon Andrew because Timmy is God's perfect child and as a good father he wants to protect his children and so we have this, this whirlpool going on of the wrath of God building up because we make mistakes we do think wrong things we're flawed in our nature and so how do you stop that by perfection integrating in and blocking the cycle one who is perfect and blameless and spotless saying i will take the elbow that timmy gave and i'll take the punch that andrew gave and i'll take responsibility for that so that father you look at them and you see your perfect children you don't see the stuff they've done but you see them in their perfections your children and you see your sin upon me and I will bear that I will take that on and I will do the sacrifice so that they don't have to I will bear my life as perfect as it is as holy as it is as unblemished as it is I will take responsibility for that so that they can be free and that's a really silly little example but can you feel the power on that? the extraordinary nature of the love of Jesus on that, that he would die for even just elbows and punches, but he would die for all evil, all brokenness in the world because he was the spotless, unblemished lamb. But then this is really cool. We're going to talk a bit about Palm Sunday. I know it's not Palm Sunday today, but we're going to talk about the Passover. So everybody, like, you know, Israel, they're in a bad condition. They're in Egypt. They're slaves. Moses has turned up, they've had the plagues, they've all this stuff going on. Pharaoh's not doing a good job. 
of letting them go. And so the spirit of death is coming because the wages of sin is death. And Egypt and Pharaoh are going against God's word right now. And so God gives Moses a message. He says, get every household to get a male, unblemished, spotless lamb and sacrifice it for my name. Then take the blood of that lamb and put it across the mantle of their doorway because the blood of the lamb will protect them from the death that is coming. And the spirit of death comes through. And I don't know if you've seen films like Prince of Egypt where they kind of like dramatize a bit, but you see it like this spirit searching out the houses that don't have the blood on and going in. And it's true, the firstborn son of every household that doesn't done it dies. It's not just the Egyptians, but also the Israelis who are in disobedience to God's plan. And then every year at the Passover, the nation of Israel celebrates in remembrance of how God beginning them being set free and taken out and into the promised land through the sacrificial lamb of atonement. And so at the temple, there's a lamb sacrifice for the sins of the whole of Israel. But then also every household goes and gets themselves a male lamb without spot and without blemish. It's a good year to be a shepherd when that's going on. Good weekend to be a shepherd. And, and they go and fetch one without spot and without blemish and they bring it to their household and they sacrifice it before God and they put the blood on the altar, on the threshold to the house so that they can be in a place of atonement before God. But this is where it gets really interesting because we all know about the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when everyone's lining the road and they're laying down cloaks and they're singing out Hosanna in the house and doing all that stuff. But do you know the day of which that happened? So it happened on a very specific day. It's known in the Jewish calendar as the Lamb Selection Day. And it's a day where those households would go and they would find themselves a male lamb without spot and without blemish and they would take it and they'd bring it back into Jerusalem and they'd go and present it at the temple for the priest to confirm that it was a spotless unblemished lamb so that then they could have a good lamb to take home to their household so it's lamb selection day and Jesus comes into Jerusalem on lamb selection day and where does he come through the sheep gate so there's lots of gates going into Jerusalem, and there's specifically one called the Sheep Gate, and it's where the shepherds would bring the sheep in. But it's also where every single family who's just been out and gotten themselves and selected a lamb is going back through the Sheep Gate into Jerusalem with hordes of lambs with them. And so we have this incredible picture. And some people believe there's up to a million people coming to Jerusalem who don't normally live there this time of year. So that road was packed for the Passover feast. And we have this picture of people walking with lambs into, through the sheep gate, into Jerusalem to seek their atonement, when in amongst them is the lamb coming through the sheep gate to bring the ultimate atonement to the nation of Israel. Isn't that amazing? And so, but then it gets even cooler than that. Because that lamb selection day had been celebrated for nearly 1,500 years at this point. And he came in through the sheep gate with all the other sacrificial lambs. But the date in the Jewish calendar is Nisan 10th. And Nisan 10th is also the day that Joshua and the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land to begin the conquest of taking a kingdom for Israel. But check this out. We've, Jesus' journey began on that day, Nisan 10th. It began in the east and it says that he came in from the east crossing the Jordan past Jericho up to Jerusalem his journey on that day 
riding on a donkey began on the other side of the Jordan. And in the same way that in Joshua, on this tenth, the nation of Israel crossed over the Jordan to bring a new kingdom to the people of Israel, the Lamb of God crossed over the Jordan to bring a new kingdom to the people of Israel. He went past Jericho, the first beginning of the conquest of God taking the kingdom of Israel, but not to establish a kingdom in the practical sense of warfare, but to establish a kingdom that will never end, that will never die out, to establish a new kingdom to point towards people. And it says that as he went past Jericho, people were crying out, Hosanna, which is literally translated as, we beg you to save us. And so he's going past Jericho, and there's people acknowledging that he is the sacrificial lamb the one who has come to bring restoration to Israel, the one who's come to set them free. But they're being distracted because they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, we beg you to save us. You are God, we adore you. And they're living in the evidence of what God did so many thousand years ago on the same day. The parallels are extraordinary here. But what they're failing to see is a supernatural kingdom about to be established, not one of this earth, but one of the heavens. And so what they're looking for is based on their need. Because most of the Jews at the time, they believed that the salvation that was coming was one of military prowess, that it was going to be a king who was going to rise up in the same way that they did when they crossed the Jordan and took Jericho, that they would come and overthrow the oppressors that they perceived in the form of the Romans. And they failed to see that actually the true oppressors were themselves. Because if we go back to what I was saying before about our choices are the things that ensnare us, our choices are the things that oppress us, that actually when the people of Israel were living in this nature and this realm of sin and brokenness as we all are, and they missed the king who was coming for their hearts and coming for the supernatural kingdom of God because they were looking for a king to come on a chariot with swords and spears to free them from their perception of oppression, not their reality of oppression. We have to be so careful in our faith journeys to not spend our lives perceiving oppression out there when we're not willing to deal with oppression in here and in here. When we say, Hosanna, I beg you to save me, God. And we're like, God, you've got to save me from those people who are being mean to me at work. God, you've got to save me from my friends who haven't been consistent to me. God, you've got to save me from my abusers. God, you've got to save me from this, this, and this. And they may well be things he saves you from, but they're not the oppressors at the root of it. Because first and foremost, we need to say, God, save me from myself. Save me from my choices, my oppression, my attitudes, my beliefs, my restrictions. Save me from every time that I don't act like you've saved me already. Save me from every time that I don't believe the cross is enough for me. Save me from every time that I doubt you, that I don't present you, that I misrepresent you. Save me. Hosanna, I beg you to save me. Revelation 12, 11. It says this, and they overcame him. This is talking of the devil. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. There is oppression in our lives. There's oppression in this world. There's oppression around us. I think if we roll reverse this and start off with the loving not our lives unto death, if we start with that attitude that says, I'm going to choose in all things and everything, everything of who I am, I'm going to try my best, my utmost, 
to choose life, not death. To choose my supernatural nature, not my carnal nature. To choose and know that God made me capable in my, in my creation to be righteous. I'm going to choose that. Because to do that is to reject yourself, your needs, your requirements, your stuff, the stuff that's the oppression of you in here and in here. And so we need to love not ourselves, but love the life. So it says, we, if you do not love your life, what do, what do you love? We love the life. Who is the life? Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if we do not love ourselves, we have to love something, which is him. We love him. Then the word of their testimony. And I'm not talking like, you know, when you get baptized, you suddenly go, well, I was brought up a Christian. And I, when I was a teenager, I did this and that. Not, not that kind of testimony with a big T. But testimony, your life, giving glory to him. There is things that have happened in your life that nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can change your experience. Your experience is your testimony. And so you can argue scripture, you can rationalize semantics, you can dynamically go through all the challenges of, you know, all the different beliefs of the end times, all that kind of stuff. Those things, you can argue them all day long. Nobody can tell you what you have and haven't experienced. That's your testimony. If you love him and he shows up and your life looks different as a result, nobody can change that. Nobody can tell you you haven't experienced something. And then when you live in that, you start to understand the authority he's placed within you so that actually it doesn't become a I'm sinful in nature, so when I sin, it's almost natural, to being I'm glorious in nature. When I'm sin, it's actually repulsive to me. It's unnatural because I'm going to live in righteousness and in glory. We have a church family member who was in overnight in hospital with their daughter. And they awoke in the middle of the night to a very bizarre situation of a nurse stood over, it's in a pediatrics ward, stood over a kind of cot, I guess, of, a, of another child, not theirs, but another child, with their arms in the air chanting. And everything in her rose up as, this is not right, this is not good, this is darkness, this is death. And, and she just started to speak out in power and truth. And then the lady stopped and kind of walked out and was kind of skulking around and she just like looked and was like, I see you and I hear you. And, and there was just this real authority that rose up in that moment, which shifted an atmosphere. And, and we're sending her a voice note this morning just saying, you know, the, the Lord may not have willed for you to be in the situation, being there in the first place, but he's going to use it. He's going to use it. Because she knows by the power of his life, and the power of her testimony of where she's seen God shift things before, where she's seen the darkness broken down and shifted away, that she's not going to go, well, you know, the pastor told me that I can pray and see things shift, so let's give it a go. It's second nature to her. She's like, no, not on my watch. Not in my atmosphere. Not when I'm standing, because I know that the lamb that was slain for all time has set me free, and he can set free others as well. And this is a bit of a side point, but I was reflecting in, in the car of Ashley this morning as we came in. But I, I feel like, you know, we're in a season and in a time in the world where we've got to understand our faith. We've got to understand the power of the blood of the Lamb and what that truly did for us. We've got to understand that, you know, 
depending on your end times theology, we can all agree with something. The Bible talks about there being an antichrist spirit in the world. And I've been reflecting a lot recently and praying a lot recently and studying a lot recently. And, and ultimately, here's, here's what I reflect actually in the car. But I was like, whenever you have a Jezebel spirit, you have Baal worship. Whenever Jezebel's in power, Baal increases in, in the land. And Baal worship in its most simple way of description is it requires the sacrifice of children. So Baal shows up, children die. Then you've got, with Jezebel, you've got Ahab. And Ahab is an abdicating spirit that allows Jezebel to have authority. And I think those combined in a modern sense is an antichrist spirit because you've got Jezebel kills the prophetic voice. She kills the prophetic um, standard of the day. She kills the Elijahs or tries to kill the Elijahs. Um, and she is all about destroying the spirit moving and God's people rising up. That's what she's all about. And then when that happens, it allows a Baal worship to come in that destroys children. And all it takes is an Ahabic spirit. And what does Ahab look like? Embracing her values and abdicating from our voice. And I actually think in this day and age, the church has become a bit too sleepy. And actually the church has become an Ahab in the world. We've, we've abdicated our responsibility. We've let the moral compass and the ethical compass of the world become something that is defined by a liberal gender, which is actually an abdicating agenda. And in amongst the liberal agenda, there's the Jezebelic spirit. And what comes underneath it is a bar worship. And in there, there's an attitude that says our children can choose to be what they want, who they want, how they want. And they're allowed to do that. That is the sacrifice of children. But then also underneath it, there's an even darker, more disgusting, evil thing underneath it where there really is sacrifice of children happening. I don't know if you remember about six months ago now probably I shared about there was a Balenciaga advertising campaign that went in, the, in vogue and on it you had children in bondage outfits with teddies, disgusting, utterly disgusting, toxic sexualization of children. But then alongside that they had all this like yellow tape that looked like police line do not cross tape you know what I'm talking about and it said Balenciaga repeatedly but then the very front of the picture it said Baal B-A-A-L on the tape you don't get that in amongst the word Balenciaga but it's right there on the front of the picture as plain as day as you can see it and there's this this statement hidden as oh it's just an advertising campaign it's just you know edgy it's in vogue there's a statement here it's been like how brazen that we've allowed the world to get to a place where it's not even a metaphor anymore. It's not even a subtlety anymore. It's not even hidden in the darkness, but there's people who feel like they're allowed in their place of work to go and chant curses over babies in a ward unattended. There's people who think it's okay to run advertising campaigns that say it's okay children to be sexualized and sacrificed. And then, you know, what? once a year when it comes to Halloween, Christians are like, oh, I don't believe in Halloween. You should believe in it. You shouldn't support it. Halloween's real. Darkness is real. Death is real. It would be a travesty if Jesus came to the world to die for the sins of the world and it was just like a happy, clappy expression of need for him. Sometimes I think we like the surface level sacrifice that Jesus did rather than the real depth of it, which is to, for the sins of the world, what does that look like? Genocide. Destruction. Murder. Satanism. Ritualistic abuse, misrepresentation of scripture, emotional abuse, all that stuff. It is all part of the darkness that we'd rather just ignore and forget about and feel really nice on a Sunday and come and hear a good word and go home again afterwards. And I know some of you are like, man, Dan's heavy today. Because it's heavy. 
It's the Lamb of God, sacrificed before all eternity for the sins of the world in their absolute accumulation. That's extraordinary, and we have joy because of it, and we get to dance to the front of church and celebrate the birth of children like Elijah on this day because God is good and he's made a way for one of his children to be born into a godly household where he's going to be raised and protected and born into in value. And that's amazing, hallelujah. But also, there's a lot of things in the world that don't echo that at all. And we've got to be a light to the world. We've got to stand up. We've got to be in that place where we don't just go, okay, Jesus, you did it. Now I'm going to kind of rely on that. But we've got, we've got to represent him properly. At the moment, I think we're dangerously close to being like the people of Israel, where we're crying out Hosanna, but we're expecting it to come in a way that's not the way God's coming. We're crying out, Hosanna, God save us, and, and in our private place, and yet we're not willing to stand up for truth. We're not willing to stand up for what God wants to do. And actually, it's, it's an odd, odd thing to bring this up, but one thing I want to make us accountable to as the leaders of church is when, when we open something's brewing, yes, it was meant to be amazing coffee, but that wasn't the point. You can go anywhere for amazing coffee. It was meant to be an interface between God and the community in its root, most simple way. And a lot of energy was put into making it really nice for people to come. Nice chairs, nice tables, nice decoration, nice music, all that kind of stuff. And yes, the only music that plays is Christian, and yes, we've got the prayer room and stuff like that, but the prayer room's still not fully renovated. We've, we've mistaken his direction in something's brewing. We got it wrong. Like, I'm being honest, we got it wrong. We didn't do it right. We didn't do what God asked us to do, which is to be an interface between God and the community. Yeah, we've made some amazing coffees and we've got some amazing Google reviews. But if we just live in that place, then we're just saying to Jesus, your sacrifice wasn't, he didn't sacrifice for us to have good coffee. He sacrificed so that lives could be changed. And here's the accountability bit. We're going to change that. We're going to fix that. We've, over like you know, the last couple of months, we've spent a lot of time re-anointing that place, re-pouring into that place, on our knees, weeping in the prayer room, just repenting for how we've not allowed God to be at the center of it. We've, we've got Katie, who some of you will remember, but she obviously did the joy to the world. The Lord has come up on the wall, and we're praying into what we're going to replace that with. We're also going to get our church vision for next year which you can hear more about on the 17th if you come to the meeting but um, Isaiah 58 in the message is the rooting of all that and we're going to get that written up on the wall in massive writing why because we don't want people to come in and be anything other than knowing that there's, this is a Christian organization and honestly we don't need to make Jesus look good we don't need to apologize for him we don't we don't need to fluff it up. We just need to allow him to flow. Now, we also need to not misrepresent him because there's a lot of people who, in the name of doing everything radically for Jesus, make some pretty bad representations of him. But man, do we need to get it right. We need to be straight down the line with him and be like, Jesus, what do you want me to do today with your sacrifice? What do you want me to do today with your death? The extravagant lengths he went to on Palm Sunday. He could have gone in through any gate. 
He could have gone through from any direction. He could have timed it for any point. But he came on Passover weekend. Not even that. He came 12 days before Passover. He came on the day of the selection of the lamb as the sacrificial lamb, following the journey of the people of Israel into the promised land to reveal a new promised land coming so that he could go through the gate with the other sacrificial lambs. He could then, where did he spend the next 12 days, by the way? In the temple. What did they do? They went and presented the sacrificial lambs in the temple to be affirmed as a sacrificial lamb. Jesus went and presented himself in the temple as a sacrificial lamb. So here I am. Anyone looking? Anyone here? And then he went to that cross as a lamb to the slaughter, but so we could be set free. The sacrificial lamb of atonement would have its hand placed upon its head and it'd be laying across the horns of the altar, spread out. And then it would be sacrificed, and its blood would be poured out. And then they'd take the body outside of the city and burn it. And where I want to land before we go into ministry time is this. There's so much picture in that of the journey Jesus went on. That as a sacrificial lamb, when they laid the crown of thorns upon his head, they laid hands upon his head, signifying actually in the spirit that they were the ones in need of atonement. Because that's who it was. The one who was sacrificed was forward, laid their hands on the head of the lamb. When they laid the crown of thorns upon his head, they laid their hands as a prophetic gesture, whether they knew it or not, of we're in need. We're in need. And then, in the same way that the lamb was spread across the horns of the altar, he was spread across the arms of the cross. He was spread out. And then he was pierced in his side and his blood ran out. And the sacrifice was done. But where did it happen? It happened outside of the city walls. And he was laying down in the tomb outside of the city walls. There's nothing here that is not interlinked. And it's extraordinary. And not just so we can be rich on information and be like, history is amazing, isn't it? Look at all that. But I think it was so intricate that there's no doubt there that Jesus was absolutely doing what he knew since the beginning of the creation of the world to be done. Do you remember I showed you that video of the odds of Jesus just getting eight of the prophetic words, right? It was the same as filling Texas with pennies, marking one penny then blindfolding yourself and finding that one penny. The same odds just eight. There's 320 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, and that doesn't even include the, him coming into Jerusalem on that date in the way he did. It's extraordinary. So why does this all matter? Because we know without a doubt that he was the lamb slain before the beginning and the creation of the world. That in his death, he fulfilled everything that needed to be fulfilled. That he abolished sin. He abolished bondage. He abolished slavery. So that we could step into our true nature, perceived by God and seen by God as his children. Free from our mistakes. Free from the things that would separate us from God. So we can be reconciled back to him. 
but not, not so we could grow fat on revelation, but so that we could show the world who he is. Some of my heroes of the faith are people who just lived and people saw God. And you think about Peter in Acts 2 where it says about his shadow healing people. I mean, just picture that. His reputation was such that just by walking by, God would be moving through him in such a way that people who had dead family members were hunting out his route to temple and laying them on the road ready for when he went past. That must have looked very weird. But also it shows that people saw something in him without him having to do anything, just by being. That's who we need to be. That's how we need to be. Every day this week, I've ended up doing close up at something's brewing. You know, it's been awesome. It's being in there on my own with the lights off and just walking around that building, thanking God for everything He's done that day, rebuking everything that's trying to come into that space that's not allowed and just resetting it with him spiritually every day. It's been, it's been such a humbling privilege to be able to do that journey with him this week. The blood of the lamb, the word of your testimony, if you do not love your life, you love the life. So I'm just going to finish with reading what I journaled again. It has been said that man is sinful in nature, but we're made in the image of God. We are glorious in nature, tainted by the choices that we make away from him. And so, ministry time today is very simple. We've got a whole load of space at the front here. And we all did communion earlier. And the response of communion is really, you know, it's, it's a remembrance of him. But what are we remembering when we do communion? What are we holding on to? Are we remembering that he did a thing with his disciples and we're saying, well, we're going to just follow a tradition. We had a board meeting this week, and I'm not going to do it justice at all, but my dad was sharing in that and talking about the difference between tradition and traditionalism. And James, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he was saying that traditionalism is the death of the spirit, essentially, because we are upholding tradition for the sake of tradition. And so when we take communion and we remember just the act of communion, that's traditionalism. We're doing it for the sake of tradition was actually when we live in tradition and we follow it with the heart that goes alongside it, we're walking in a power that allows the spirit to flow. And so we've all taken communion today. We've all remembered him. And as we land, I just want to kind of make it available. If the ministry team are around, then feel free to just circulate the room and stuff. But really, this is about you and God today. And so there's a big space here. And... I just want to make an opportunity and I wonder if we... Where's Praveen gone? Praveen, you're around. Hello, coming out from the curtain on the stage. Wonderful. Um, Addy, if you're happy just to fade out my phone and fade in Praveen. But we're going to just have a time where either in your seats or the front, you can come 
and I'd probably recommend if you need to, to move out of your seat and come to the front, but to just grab hold of the wealth of him as our Passover lamb, of the fact that the spirit of death was hunting us out, and it's by his blood on the mantelpiece of our lives that we are set free to be able to be living in his life. And so if you have been really like challenged by today's message of just actually, man, what am I doing misrepresenting him in the same way that we've been like hours now just weeping and repenting for where we haven't carried God's plan for this church properly, even in the last 10 months, then I just encourage you just to get right with him. Like Simi called us to, just get right with him. Just re-put into that place. I wonder, Andrew, if you can shove the box of communion cups at the front again. And, and just, if you feel like, actually, you also need to do communion again, do communion again. Like, traditionalism would say, you've done it once, you're okay until next time, next month. Tradition would say that, actually, as you remember him, you understand that just a single wafer and a single cup isn't enough. We need to be immersing ourselves in communion with him constantly because we need more of his blood. We need more of his body. We need more of his freedom. And so if you need to take communion again, take communion again. If you need to just be on your knees, be on your knees. If you need to be flat on your face, be flat on your face, whatever it is. But here's the call today. Jesus went willingly as the Passover lamb, the sacrifice for you. And in his willingness, he enabled you to be able to willingly approach him in freedom. So I'm going to pray and then say goodbye to our online church family. And then we're just going to make it available for you guys to do whatever you want. Because it's between you and him. But first of all, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for what you did. For how you knew the cost of coming to the earth. You knew what you were going to go through. You knew the pain that you were going to have to endure. But for us, you did that so that we could be called children of God, so that we could have lavish love pouring out upon us, so that we could be not held accountable to the sins we've done, but be held accountable to the choices of you we make. God, we ask, would you pour out your grace upon us right now as we lean into you, we lean into your freedom, we lean into your salvation, Father. Right now, I ask, would you release your salvation in the room? If there's any of you in the room today, actually, you don't even know if you are saved, then please come and talk to me and we can deal with that. But here's the deal. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He didn't just come and seek, but he came to save as well. And so, God, we just say today, we thank you for our salvation. We cry out, Hosanna in the highest. We beg you to save us, God. And we understand and know that the moment we allowed you to be our Lord and Savior, we understand and know that you saved us. But also, God, in this moment, for where there's been moments where we haven't carried our salvation well, for where we've misdefined the oppressors, where we've oppressed ourselves in our hearts and in our minds and in our actions, God. Would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us and redeem us? But also would you help us to step into righteousness, to walk in holiness, to be a true signpost to your kingdom, to never miss your kingdom, to never mistake your kingdom, but to always represent your kingdom in all that we do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. And so I'm just going to ask Praveen to keep playing for a bit. If at some point you hear mayhem from children, then if you are a responsible adult for a child, then decide what you want to do. Um, But other than that, just please engage with him. Come and get communion again. Come and be on your knees at the front.
whatever you need to do, but it's between you and him. And so for those of you online, bless you. Thank you for tuning in today. We pray for you wherever you are that you would encounter him in this moment and the power of his blood right now. And if you're watching this and you've never said yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I just, I call you to hear his name, hear his voice, and to respond today and say, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I thank you, you died for my sins. I choose you, would you help me to live free from sin today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. But goodbye to those of you online. To everyone else, do what you need to do. Okay?